You're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Uznick, brought to you by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today we have Chris Farrell as our guest. He is a journalist, an author, and a speaker. You may know him as a journalist for PBS, Next Avenue, and the Star Tribune. You might have read his articles for Bloomberg Businessweek, the New York Times, Kiplinger's, or other publications. You may have caught his commentary on Marketplace Morning Report, where I was first introduced to him, or heard him hosting conversations on the creative economy on Minnesota Public Radio. Or you may have been in the audience when he talks about the grassroots socialist movement, reimagining and rethinking the second half of life. Welcome to The Caring Economy, Chris Farrell. Ah, well, thank you very much for having me. I, I always ask my, my guests to tell us a little bit about their career journey, knowing at this point in life that no one got where they got by themselves. They had their mentors, they had their, their um, bumps in the road. So tell us a little bit about Chris Farrell and how you got where you got. Well, it's a little bit unusual. I grew up in a military and then shipping families. So we did that moving every two, three years. So uh, Fort Hamilton, Brooklyn, Guam, lived in uh, Bremerhaven, Germany, but mostly up and down the New York, Washington quarter. After college, I became a merchant seaman for four years and I worked in the engine room of, of ships, one container ship and all the others were oil tankers. So I got to go through Suez Canal, Panama Canal. Um, and that was quite the adventure. And then I took all my savings uh, and uh, went to London School of Economics for a year to get my master's and the opportunity to live in London. And at that point, you know, what do I want to do with myself? And I thought I might want to be an academic and the London School of Economics convinced me that I did not want to be an academic. <laughs> so I decided to become a journalist and it took me a year of pounding the pavement. And I just want to say to anybody who's listening to this, six months in, um, I was discouraged. And I got an interview with James Chase. He was the legendary editor of Foreign Affairs. And he said, I don't have a job for you, but tell me, what are you trying to do? And he talked for me for an hour. And he said, look, don't give up. You're gonna find a job. This is, this is what you're gonna end up doing. And it took me another six months, but it did. And I became a journalist. And um, much of my career was at Business Week magazine. Mm -hmm. Always been involved with a long time with public radio, Minnesota Public Radio and Marketplace. And I love being a journalist. It's uh, if you're curious about anything and you know how to form a question, you can turn it into a story. Yeah. And, and people will talk to you. Yes, I, I've learned that having spent five years at the New York Times as a publicist, basically. Um, and like you, I spent a lot of time in graduate school working toward that PhD and ultimately left. But I, I share your journey there. It's, it's uncanny how similar it is. But I, I wonder when you, you've really had a purpose-driven life, I think. You've, you, you now write about, you've got a book out uh, called Purpose and a Paycheck, Finding Meaning, Money and Happiness in a Second Half of Life. And you regularly opine on this on public radio. You obviously learned some lessons along the way, and you're sharing it with others. And I wonder if you might talk a little bit about that. What what's maybe the genesis of your book and your public speaking? So the genesis was so my careers have sort of two sides to it. One is economics, and the other is personal finance. And if you think about personal finance over the past three decades, it's a large part of it is about the aging the baby boom generation. The baby boom generation hasn't saved enough for their retirement. 
and they're going to have this miserable life when they hit those retirement years. And then if you think about it on the economic side, the demographics of aging, we have this aging population and we're going to have too few young workers supporting too many dependent elderly. So these two strands come together and basically we have a miserable future ahead of us. <laughs> and um, was doing some research and was kind of skeptical. And what I found was around the world, and a lot of it's out of Europe, uh, and now again, we're back about 15 years ago now, uh, a lot of about, you know, all these attitudes about aging and how deeply wrong uh, they were. I mean, there's this notion, John Kenneth Galbraith mm -hmm. uh, wrote an essay, it's in the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica, it's called the Still Syndrome. And he said, you know, I'm at that age when, you know, people who are younger than me, they come up to me and they'll say, ah, I see, you're still having a cocktail. Ah, I see you're still working out. Ah, I see that you're, you're still writing. And his favorite was a colleague that I didn't see for a long time says, hey, I still see you're alive. Now he wrote this essay when he was 90 years old. He continued to write until he was 97. And you know, we have these deeply ingrained prejudices about aging and what aging means. Mm -hmm. And what we're learning and what we know, what the science tells us, we're better educated than before. We're healthier on average. Mm -hmm. uh, our brains do not deteriorate. We, we learn how to connect the dots better. We have uh, what might be called wisdom. Uh, we have experience that, that, that we draw upon. And when you start looking like an artist, you begin to realize that some artists are, do their most creative work when they're in their 80s. Uh, and then you start looking around at the professions. And this, I mean, you just, anyway, once your eyes are open, you begin seeing examples all over. So I think this is a, a grassroots civil rights movement fighting against age discrimination and ageism. But I also think it's wonderful for the economy. You want this economy to grow faster? If you're a manager and you're complaining about, I can't find the qualified workers that I mm -hmm. need, are you looking at workers 55 years and older? What yep. is your age of a worker? What are your, who are your algorithms excluding? And by the way, it also include people and oftentimes it's women, not always women, but oftentimes women have gone off and done caregiving. It might be young children, it might be aging parents for two or three years. These are people yep. with careers. They've had success. They've taken some time off. The algorithms exclude them. them now, they did, they're not brain dead. They did not, over the past three years, but they did all kinds of incredible things over three years that we applaud as a society. So a lot of this is about trying to change the way people think about aging and older workers and mm -hmm. their contributions. And there's the positive side of it is they have so much to offer. Mm -hmm. The negative side is in the United States, we have a lousy retirement system. It's got so many holes in it. It's just, it's a terrible system. And so a lot of people have to work longer, but are denied the opportunity. Mm -hmm. But I also think the purpose piece is interesting because if you give someone purpose, you don't necessarily have to give them the top dollar wage, right? No. They want purpose more, particularly older employees. They really want to be, myself included, I've just now this year joined the British consulate as head of communications. Government pays what it pays, right? But wow. Yeah present Her Majesty's government as a force for good that dovetails with my desire, as with this podcast, with the work you do, to talk about purpose and bettering society and the planet. So I think to your point, if I understand it correctly, and I encourage my listeners to pick up your book, the idea of purpose is more important than ever and something that brands can actually use to their advantage to bring in talent. 
Absolutely. I mean, if you think about purpose is not a luxury. It's fundamental who we are. No. And sometimes I run to people think, well, purpose, that's if you're an elite. You know, that's if you're better off, you can think about purpose, but it really isn't a luxury. And there's a wonderful book, Studs Terkel, mm -hmm. a legendary broadcaster. And he wrote this book in the mid-1970s called Working. Now you are taking a step back in time because he would do uh, what we're doing, but we would be in a bar mm -hmm. and we would be having beer. And he would interview an, a railroad engineer, a secretary, an elevator operator. So obviously, you know, this is a different world. Mm. I think the only famous person that he interviewed in that book was uh, Pauline Kael, the film mm. critic. Yeah. And what he says, but the inter all you have to read is the introduction. The introduction where he says, look, daily bread is important. Having some earnings is important. But what really matters is people want respect. They want, he didn't use the, you know, they want meaning, they want purpose, they want a reason to get up in the morning yep. and put your feet on the ground and get dressed and you feel good about what you're doing. And it's not about feeling good every day, but it's about you basically feel that you're contributing yep. and you're giving back, but you're also respected for what you're doing. And so purpose is has to be a part of any of this conversation. Yeah, you know, we can go out and get a job and pay the bills and all of us, at some point in our life, that's exactly what we've done. You know, mm -hmm. bills have to be paid. We have responsibilities. Maybe you're doing something that you really are not happy doing. But you really, as a goal, you want to be doing the purpose. And I think with age, as you were mentioning, with age, that becomes, you know, I've reached age, so I'm 68 years old. Mm -hmm. And I've reached that age where young college graduates will reach out and they'll say, can I talk to you? And information interview about what is a career. They know what a job is, but what's a career, yeah. right? And we know, yes, I have a friend who, you know, in the womb knew he wanted to be a lawyer, but most people don't, don't know. know what this career is. And these conversations are wonderful because there's idealism at work. Mm -hmm. And yes, they want to be independent. They want to earn an income, but they also want to do something that makes a difference, that makes this yeah. world a better place. I'm sure you've had these conversations and you feel good after that. And you, you say, don't lose that sense of idealism. Yeah, I tell people all the time, you can't, don't think that you're gonna, like you've cited that one in the room, the lawyer. It, the career makes sense in the rear view mirror. <laughs> Like yes. Just figure out the purpose piece and everything else will fall in place. And you will know as you look back on your career, it's exactly where I needed to be at that moment in time because yeah. I followed that purpose, that passion, and then everything added up to that. And so I've had the same conversation with people in their late 50s and early 60s. It is the exact same conversation. It's kind of a, what's going to be my encore? What am I going to do next? But it's the same. I need to earn an income. I want to be earning an income. Got to pay those bills. I want my independence. But I want to do something that has purpose, that I feel good about that. I get up in the morning and I want to be going to work. Mm -hmm. And the idealism is the same. And the only difference is that when you're young, time is infinity. You have all this time ahead of you. That's how you think. And when you're in your 50s and early 60s, you're a little more aware that time is finite. Yeah. And by the way, just as an aside, mm -hmm. here's the thing. Don't be oppressed by the notion that time is finite. You're still going to experiment. You want that experimental mindset. You're still going to have to be open to opportunities. And you may think that this is what you want to be doing. And you find out two or three steps later that, no, this is what I want to be doing. Yeah. That, that never changes. but the idealism is the same.
Yeah, well, to that point, I do believe time is the most precious thing we have, but I tell people hurry and not hurry out of fear, but hurry because if you want to find that purpose, you're going to get there through an iterative process, right? So don't don't wallow too much in self-pity, right? Like experiment, talk to people, get out, use the tools that are available to us that when you and I were younger, weren't necessarily available. That makes me want to ask you, when I first tuned into you on uh, Marketplace on public radio, you had cited, a, you did a story on a report out of LinkedIn about yeah. uh, the big quit. We're hearing more, call it what you will, but what do you, what's your take on that for employers, for brands today and the generation in a COVID era who have maybe just quit or, or just jump ship? This is, I think this is a huge uh, issue. So as we're talking, the numbers just came out for mm-hmm. September and it was a record number of people who quit their job. So if since April, um, almost 24 million people have voluntarily quit their job. There's almost no layoffs, by the way, because the there's a the, it's a series has voluntary quits and then has layoffs. There's hardly any layoffs. There's voluntary quits, and it's a cliche. We don't really want, uh, know what's going on until we have some time and we can look back. But it does appear that there are two or three things going on. One is with COVID and people who were able to work from home, there was a social isolation. And sort of thinking about, well, wait a minute, you know, is this what I want to be doing? You know, this sort of who am I? And we realized that, you know, sad that many people lost lost their lives during during the COVID and many people are at risk. What is it I'm doing with my life? What is it that, that I want to be doing? And also, I think can't be underestimated that if you were working from home, the reality is you couldn't spend that much money because there was very little to spend your money on. So people's finances were improved, you know, paid down some credit card debt or mm-hmm. improved their, their savings. The other thing is employers are screaming, they're demanding for workers, you know, they're, they're willing to, um, you know, raise their wages, everything, yeah. Exactly, so it's a great time to be making a move wherever it is you wanna be going. And it may be that what you need to do is just say, I'm just quitting for a while because I think, you know, this is gonna last for a certain amount of time. I also think on the side that is really upsetting is that I do think there's a number of women, mostly women, not all women, but mostly women who for family caregiving reasons have felt that they need to quit. And that is really wrong. And that's a bad thing. But overall, what it does appear is that people are leaving their jobs for something better. And a lot of employers really want to go back to where what it was before COVID. And if you think about the employer point of view, just go from 2000 to 2019. For most jobs, there's a line of people out the door. Yep. And you get, right. And if you were an employer, so I, I, I had this conversation interviewed for a story I was working on uh, the late Warren Bennis. He's a legendary um, professor of leadership. He's at the University of California. And just very quickly, he told me the story. He says, Chris, here's the thing. You know, when there's lots of people looking for a job and we were looking for an HVAC technician, we decided, you know, this HVAC technician should have a master's degree. And then this HVAC technician, not only should have a master's degree, but they should compose a piece of classical music. And then they should build the piano and build the piano out of sustainable materials and perform the piece of music. And then we would consider hiring them. He says, you know, when it gets harder and harder to find workers, what happens is, okay, forget the classical music. Okay, forget the master's degree. Hey, are you an HVAC technician? Can you do the job? And so right now, I don't think you can underestimate 
how important it is that um, that the definition of a good economy is when firms are looking for workers yeah. and not the other way around. And for two decades, if you were an employer, you know, it was people out the door. Yeah, it's definitely they were there. I, I thought you're going to also add to that growing list of requirements that be done in Mandarin as well. <laughs> well, that would, <laughs> that would have been good. Ladies and gentlemen, again, today on The Caring Economy, we're thrilled to have Chris Farrell as our guest. He's a journalist, author, public radio commentator, and speaker. Um, Chris, if people want to pick up a copy of your book, Purpose in the Paycheck, or follow you, what's the best way? So, so uh, Purpose in the Paycheck, uh, basically, you're going to get it at this point from your, it came out in 2019. So you're going to basically at this point be getting it from your online uh, retailers. That, that's the simplest way to do it. Um, it's chrisferrell.net uh, is my website. And you can also follow me uh, at Minnesota Public Radio. It's probably one of the easiest ways to do or at Marketplace. Cool. Um, you know, you'd mentioned a little bit about women and being disproportionately affected by COVID. Um, and we talk a lot on the caring economy about just DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion yeah. in general. And I wonder what some of your observations or trends have been that you've seen around that in this moment where, you know, during the height of COVID, we had George Floyd's murder and all the, the fallout from that. And I think the great brands, the great leaders have embraced it and are really trying to, with their employees, with their customers, go there, talk about it, address it, process it. Um, ha have you had any observations around that that you might comment on? So a couple observations. One, I think you're absolutely right in terms of the top leadership, but here's the challenge to top leadership. I actually think that that's how they thought before the, the murder of George Floyd. Mm -hmm. uh, the question is, are you going down to your, your, your middle managers, the ones who work with the suppliers and the vendors, and are you saying, by the way, your bonus, your pay is dependent on diversifying our supplier base. Mm -hmm. So it's really about uh, broadening our hiring and broadening uh, our suppliers and our vendors. And so that you're creating business opportunities for minorities, for blacks, for women-owned firms. Uh, and so I really, and it has to get beyond the leadership level mm -hmm. in terms of both you know, who's wielding power, but also in terms of hiring. So I think there are some, you know, optimistic signs out there, yeah. but it's something that really needs to be followed through. And there's a lot of just wonderful uh, black entrepreneurs who are still struggling to get in the, in the door and they'll be at a conference and they'll get all kinds of, they'll hear this conversation, but we want to be working with you. But then when it actually comes to getting in the door and getting a contract and becoming a, uh, um, you know how most companies have a favorite supplier, or, you know, an approved supplier. That's still too tough yeah. when it comes to the entrepreneur. You know, in every uh, community, uh, I live in St. Paul. You live in New York, but there's a whole entrepreneurial network of incubators and mm -hmm. um, co-sharing workspaces and all kinds of things. It's this entrepreneurial ecology, but how open is it? Yeah. And are you are you really creating venues that are, are, are welcoming to minorities and to blacks? So, again, I think the sentiment is there, but I just want to keep the pressure on 
that there needs to be a lot more follow through. Yeah. I wonder if you have uh, any examples of either uh, resources or brands that you've written about or, or reported on or that you might cite as examples of what success or near success looks like in terms of diversifying either the supplier base or a place for entrepreneurs to seek out if they want to get their names into a, a competitive bid situation or so the only thing that, that I have recently that I can so uh, a lot of what I do is, is about combating ageism mm -hmm. and uh, age discrimination against the older worker is really strong. And I recently did an event down in uh, Palm Beach and there's this group, uh, Encore Palm Beach County mm -hmm. and uh, founded by Roseberry Nixon five years ago. And, you know, I would say those early years were really tough and yeah, that's a good thing. Not much follow through. Uh, I was just down there and um, Palm Beach County school system has a program if you had a different career and you're 55 or older to accelerate to transition to becoming a teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a technology firm. And if I remember the number right, 35% of their workers were 50 years and older. There was um, a firm which lays flooring, a family owned firm. And their main instructor is in his, in his 80s. And you know, there were a number of firms that had truly embraced uh, experienced workers rather than excluding experienced workers. So that was a real that was a recent case mm -hmm. that and what it really comes down to there, you know, part of it is the effort, but part of it is there's a lot of businesses moving there. Yeah. In a number of people, you know, and I do think that so much does depend on what are your circumstances. So just very briefly, there was a, a you know, a firm in, in Minnesota that they're good sized firm, good firm, a lot of machinists. And they were investing in automation. And why were they investing in automation? Not to get rid of workers, but to keep their older workers around for a longer period of time mm -hmm. so that they could teach the younger workers who are coming out of the community college and the trade schools how you actually really do the job. Yeah. Right. And so we all know that. So that was that that one just comes to mind just because I was just recently down there. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think that. Uh, you know, I've heard, you probably have heard this phrase, the uh, reference to the gray renaissance. <laughs> so <laughs> you have a renaissance of workers who are gray, right? So yes, exactly. it's great that there are exciting conversations like this happening demographically. It is a qualified, talented, ambitious work crowd that has been perhaps disrupted or, you know, put out of the marketplace for a bit. But um, I, I wonder if there's, um, if you have any thoughts about I will say it broadly as loyalty and rewards. I mean, I, we both came up in a generation where you thought if you did your job well and you made your annual, you know, good reviews and your salary increase that you would have as near to possible career lifelong employment. But I, I believe that's gone now. I do believe that we need to have at least two or three income streams in our lives. <laughs> but I wonder if you would challenge me on that or have a, uh, an alternative view to that. I wish I could challenge you on that because I'd like to challenge you on that. I think that uh, we put too much responsibility on the individual, but the reality is um, you sort of, you have to think of yourself as an entrepreneur. That doesn't mean that you're going to be running a small business. You can be an employee, but it's an entrepreneurial mindset. Yep. And so as you're doing your job and your job skills, uh, 
you know, actually really think about well, what are my skills? Not what is my job title, but what are my skills? And you also have to think your most valuable asset is not your 401k, your 403b. Your most valuable asset are the people that you know, your network. Network. Yep. And I mean, a lot of people recoil to that word, but we all have a network. We have former colleagues. We have people that we may know at church or temple. We have uh, people that we just met at conferences or, you know, depending on what kind of work you're doing. And the reality is most people are going to get their jobs through their network. You're also, but the other real value of your network is people say things like, you know, what are your skills? You know, not your job, but what are your skills? Well, what are my skills? How do I think about this? Well, that's when you tap into your network. You say, well, what are my skills? And your network will come at, well, you're a really good communicator. Uh, you may have a, a self-image that you're an empathetic person, but you're not an empathetic person. You'll never be an empathetic person. But what you're really good at doing is organizing things, right? So you you learn that I'm an, I'm an organization person, or you learn that I'm an empathetic person, or that I have a communication skill, or whatever it is. Okay. So your network can kind of help you think about what it is you do well. And they're not going to get you the job, but what they're going to do is say, well, you know, you should talk to so-and-so or you should go to this person mm -hmm. because, and I think it's true for young people, a lot of young people who are discouraged, you know, are sending out lots and lots of resumes and they're being rejected. And the reality is most people who send out resumes when you're in your 20s, your 40s or your 60s are going to be rejected and you'll never hear from the company. You still get your job through the network by doing informational interviews, mm -hmm. by talking to people. And eventually someone says, you know, you should talk to so-and-so and that turns out to be the right person. Yeah. Well, I love the way you think and act. I, I feel the same way, Chris. The other part I would add to that is it works both ways, right? So networking or call it what you will is not just about what you need and want at a moment in time, right? It's when others knock on your door or come to you Absolutely. and ask for guidance. And I think it's quite affirming to be able to help someone else. I believe service is the most important thing any of us can do in life. And I even think of the caring economy as my sort of service. And it's um, empowering as well, right? When you help another person, yeah. it, it really helps everybody. And um, I like to like tell people, I do a lot of information interviews. I like to tell people like, this is my joy and you'll do this one day if you haven't already for someone else that's the way it works yeah. well think about during the pandemic and then i i did this i'm sure you did this and it's an important point that you're making it just called up some people I had nothing to do with i'm i'm developing my network i'm making sure that you know just calling how are you doing are you yeah. okay and you can talk about work you just sort of talked about life and the yeah. meaning of life and what was going on in in your world and I think it's absolutely important to think about your network is, you know, part of who you are and you want to give, you want to participate. And, and that's, I think, why there's a little bit of recoiling to the word network, because it sounds very transactional. Mm -hmm. And, but what I'm saying is these are the people who know and care about you and they love you or they like you, or they think highly of you, or they respect yeah. you in some way and it's vice versa. So yeah. yes, it's very much, um, it's a relationship. It's not yeah. a transaction. Yeah, I agree. I, I often use the concept that my friends too introduced me to of reputational currency. How do you interact across mm -hmm. time with those people, right? And yeah. I don't ever sell my Rolodex or do anything 
grossly commercial with it. What I do is I try and help others as others help me. And I always try and connect people in a way that's thoughtful and considerate and good for all parties involved, right? Because that's yeah. when you have a, a real lasting impact. And that's very satisfying, I find. Um, Chris, I want to let you have the last word. Tell us what's next for you. What are you working on now? Either story, an article, a book, a project? No, the, the project that I'm most excited about is I'm co-host, co-producer of a podcast called Small Change, Money Stories from the Neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And there is this widespread stereotype in our society that if you don't have much money, you're financially illiterate. And if you're only financially illiterate, you would have money. And I think it's, it is so deeply wrong. Mm -hmm. If you don't have much money, you know where every penny is going. And so we, uh, we go into a neighborhood, a community uh, for where people living on a low and unstable income. And we talk to, to people who bought a house, started a business, educate their children. And we learn from them. Mm -hmm. How did you do it? And the, the main message is this, it's not about you. Personal finance isn't about the personal. It starts with community. It starts with your family, your extended family, uh, ethnic group, the neighborhood. And it's the community coming together in order to solve these money problems. And it changes the way that you think about money. It changes the way that, uh, and I think too many people will look at people without much money and look at the deficits and not look at the assets. And so what I love is that we're giving voice and allowing people to tell their story and how they solved a problem. Challenge. Cool. And how will we be able to follow that when it's airing? So it's uh, smallchangestories.org. Terrific. Again, ladies and gentlemen, today it's been my joy to have Chris Farrell with us on The Caring Economy, the journalist, author, speaker. If you ever need someone to talk about these bigger issues, he's your man. Thank you again for joining us, Chris. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy, brought to you by Philanthropic Impact. If you'd like to add greater purpose to your business or your career, please follow us on Twitter at T. Uznik or on LinkedIn at Toby Uznik. We are at your service. Thank you for tuning in and have a great career.